Back. This is Alex uh, talking to Ashley Frawley, and George and Phil are here too. And we are continuing our review of 2022 by discussing the rise in labor militancy, and then we'll finish off by talking about our things to look forward to in 2023. Yeah. So, I mean, at the same time as there's this uh, left tendency towards accelerationism, I guess, which is to say um, of accelerating the fragmentary consequences of. Uh, fragmentary forces of neoliberal capitalism, um, of trying to break down a family which is already um, struggling to 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 sustain itself. Um, you also have, um, and you know, to be a little bit more positive about this, a um, changed attitude, I think, towards work. And we're seeing that um, not just in the Great Resignation, which of course was one of the big stories of 2022, um, to a large degree probably oversold, um, though it does, you know, continue to uh, matter quite a lot in certain industries, right, particularly in in um, kind of workers and rest service, service workers and restaurants and bars and things like that, um, who haven't returned to their old jobs. But at the same time, there does seem to be, um, albeit from an incredibly low base, some sense of rising labor militancy. So right now in the UK, just to take an example, there's a big nurses strike. And apparently over the past six months, from June to November 2022, more than 1.6 million days were lost to labor disputes, which is the most in any one year since 1990, which really does give me a lot of end of the end of history vibes. Um, So, you know, the kind of past 30 years suddenly kind of maybe reaching some sort of closure and and labor militancy rising, albeit from a a low base. Um, That would be, I guess, a cause for optimism. I thought it was addressed to somebody, Alex. You have to. Uh, you'll have to take it. Well, out. I, I was hoping someone would just jump in and. and uh, I'll jump in that. now, so you, I guess you can edit it out. Um, yeah, it is. It is a cause for optimism. I mean, you know, there is plenty of caveats, right? Um, the daily, you know, kind of the tabloid headlines here in the UK are screaming about a de facto general strike, which is nonsense. Um, you know, both in sectoral terms and also just in terms of um, you know the proportion of the labour force actually involved in industrial action but it is um it is striking and it's not to say there's not been industrial disputes throughout the kind of end of history period you know you had kind of um, significant industrial disputes in belgium and france and so on but um what's striking about the ones in the uk is that they've come out of a period of such kind of quiescence um that they are um you know they seem to be uh, they seem to involve a good deal of militancy on the part of um ordinary workers that was not there before um, or didn't seem to be there before. And so, you know, it does kind of um, raise the question of what's going on and if there are any things which are, um, except, you know, if there's any um, any factors that are specific to Britain that help explain it at this particular point. But you've also got, you know, I mean, there's labor disputes in the Netherlands. There was, um, you know, there's been the kind of certain victories in uh, union organizing in the US and the service sector, as well as the railroad strike, and the fact that it reached even the political level with the embarrassment of the squad, um, you know, siding with the Democrats against the railway workers trying to impose a deal and whatnot. So 
I think all of that is, you know, it's not um, it's not to mistake signs for wonders. It's significant in a very basic way that you have the assertion of um, of working class self interest. Um, in the UK, at least, you know, it's still kind of limited to public sector or public sector adjacent unions, um, where you still have significant kind of readouts of union organisation. But it's also worth bearing in mind, right? It's going, you know, like um, you have a union leadership that are also kind of engaged in a complex dance and always are in a complex dance with the Labour Party and that it will contribute, inevitably contribute to a Labour Party victory. Um, So the broader question is, you know, what could become of the Labour unrest politically? Because if it's just kind of channeled into a victory of the Labour Party at the next election, then... um, you know, there will be very little, very little of it will be, um, will have been, will come with political gains. George? Yeah, I mean, just, just on, just to pick up Phil's last point, I think this is the, there is a difference in probably what the <clears throat> rank and file compared to the union bureaucracies are looking to get out of this. And I think the latter, um, you know, think of who, who is likely to have kind of, staffed and and moved up in unions in the last sort of 15 20 years they are very closely allied to the to the labor party and this is with with some exceptions in this in this country rmt for example um and yeah it does it does seem like this this is what it's heading towards i mean you do you want to kind of take the positives and um but i i I do have a bit more of a of a feeling that it's um you know it's it's or the We've been talking about narratives. I don't know why, but the narrative here, which is which I can sort of see developing, is this is you know conservatives unable to run the country. You know, maybe Starmer can do it. Maybe the Labour Party is what what this country needs and is you know a bit more friendly towards um, yeah public sector striking workers who who on the whole have quite a high level of public sympathy um, with you know tabloid and right wing press exceptions. And yeah, that's that's if that's what we get out of it, it's not a particularly good sort of initial return but maybe that's the the first step um and you know there are more after that which which have a bit more of a i don't know an an output which isn't just wow we've got a labor government yeah and i guess this is the one element which um is kind of this third element between the culture wars which you know increasingly seem to be uh, happening on almost psychosexual terms um, continually, but questions about gender and and the family actually, ironically, which only rather f- seems to further the left's aversion to the family, um, which is uh, which is the wrong wrong take as we've been discussing, um, but also that um, that you know kind of labor struggles rather break through a lot of this stuff, um, and which is something that neither the um, the the culturally populist right, as the Tony Blair Institute wants to call it, um, wants to wants to you know back or speak for. Um, nor does, of course, the sort of liberal technocratic managerial establishment. Um, and I'm just interested about you know to what extent you know what are the the political consequences of this and how whether it's able to to sort of break free from the form of that politics has taken, especially over the past sort of three years, which is precisely this sort of culture war. Ashley. Yeah, I mean, you can see it as a return to a kind of material politics. At the same time, I have very similar misgivings um, that have already been aired uh, in terms of who it is that's striking. I felt a bit concerned. I don't know. 
I shouldn't sort of say this out loud because I don't have deep thoughts about this, but with the lecturer's strike, for example, after two years of utterly screwing students, I really felt like, is this the time to be talking about professors' uh, retirement? (laughs) I mean, I just, I, I don't know. We in the higher education have been getting so royally screwed. Like during the pandemic, I worked, uh, my my workload tripled. I had a two-year-old and a barely four-year-old, barely two-year-old and a barely four-year-old at home. And I was working right through the night, like without sleeping. And I would continue working into the next day and I didn't sleep until the next night. Like I fully believe that I'm going to die young because of what those two years did to me. It was absolutely awful. Um, but is this is something that um, this is a problem that's been going on for a really long time, and it's part of the um, uh, the marketization of higher education. And I feel like some of what UCU was doing was tackling that really deep issue of marketization, but through like the odd one day strike. Uh, and it was like it was kind of like, well, what do you want to do here? Do you want to do something small and actually solve our problems and like say we need more staff? And we need you to hire more staff. We need to reduce our we need you to reduce our workloads, and, and you know pay us in line with inflation. Um, or do you want to like launch this enormous political battle uh, against uh, the marketization of education? And if if that if you're going to do the latter, then you need to do something much bigger. And I just kind of was like, well, otherwise we're just sacri- we're just like gifting our salaries over. Uh, and I, I, as I said, I don't have like deep thoughts about that, but that was sort of my misgivings about it. Um, and I just felt really bad because the students were so supportive and they understood what we had been through. But I felt awful doing that right after the pandemic. And and for what? Yeah. Now the, I mean, the industrial strategy of UCU has just been kind of a lesson in. Um, you know, pointlessness and stupidity in so many ways. Um, and again, I mean, it kind of in in without real, you know, for them, neoliberalism is what management does in the university rather than thinking about how kind of it infiltrates all the kind of woke social justice stuff yeah. that, they, yeah. that they support, you know, and how, you know, I mean, it's very clear. I mean, anyone who's in a university should, you know, can probably see this. Uh, the social justice stuff is a way of re- essentially eliminating your competitors. Um, you know, provides an extra edge in this desperate battle for tenure, for a permanent job, for the next temporary contract, whatever it is. Um, it's very clear, you know, they cancel, you cancel your enemies, you cancel your opponents, you um, you kind of gather people um, around you and you secure yourself through propagating, you know, these ideas and these ideologies. And I've seen it play out, um, you know, at my, at least at my former institution. Yeah. Um, yeah. Forgive me in for very not feeling ways. A, a huge amount of solidarity with people who five minutes ago were throwing me under the bus for things that I said online. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to be like arms linked. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I mean, you know, it's not a union, you know, it's not a union, it's an NGO, really, that's essentially it. So it has kind of tremendous middle class zeal for its favoured topics, but it doesn't actually know how to defend workers' interests in the context of the modern university. And there's many examples where it's not even defended people who are in danger of losing their jobs, you know, I mean, Kathleen stock being um one example, but there are others as well, you know, anyway, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to kind of get bogged down in, 
you know, a kind of a diatribe against UCU's industrial strategy because that'll be a whole kind of uh, podcast in itself. Mm-hmm. But it's only to, um, yeah, I suppose it's only to underscore the fact that it's a very, it's a halting, you know, it's a very kind of in, um, halting and incipient return to or assertion, I suppose, of um, of labor interest in the wider in the wider labor force, because you know for so long the biggest industrial dispute in the UK was the academics, you know, the academics kind of um, industrial dispute over the last few years, and now that's been overwhelmed by um, uh, by the people who weren't working from home in the pandemic. They're striking too now, and so that's quite you know that's um, I think that's important, but you know it shouldn't be um, yeah signs shouldn't be mistaken for wonders. I think I think it's a really good point. Um, I, I know I have been optimistic about a worker striking. You know, I I was on Sky News recently, and I said it's good that that uh, you know Amazon strikers were you know hitting Amazon where it hurt over Christmas, and they were being threatened with automation. And I was like, great, automate then. Like, <laughs> why should you accept? You know, why should you subsidize with your living conditions and your life? their failure to innovate. Like, I, I want to be optimistic about these things. At the same time, a part of me thinks that where progress is going to come from in the future and where disputes are going to come from is it's not going to take those old recognizable forms. Um, if you look at like, even just something like the Gilets jaunes, it's not a, a, the obvious kind of like labor dispute. Or like the truckers, it's not the obvious kind of labor dispute. And I think a lot of people on the left didn't quite know what to do with that Mm. because it didn't take these forms that they recognized. And so they either completely ignored it or they wrote it off as like fascism and embryo. Um, But I think that's going to be a a huge part of it. It's it's not going to be, well, it might be now, who knows, like uh, fights about living conditions and, and material things. And also, if you look at like Davos, what I found interesting was the narrative that the fat cat billionaires were saying was like, oh, we're not going to fire workers. Hard times are coming, but we're not going to fire workers. And we're not going to pay them less. I thought that was really, really interesting. I haven't quite wrapped my head around what the hell is going on with that, because mm. how could you possibly not? But anyways, um, they kind of recognize that they need to pay people off to a certain extent. Uh, and yeah, people I think, also- I mean... It's a calculation of social. I mean, for a long time, so you know, you had the phenomenon of labor hoarding, um, you know, in the era of cheap money, that people kind of instead of firing, you know, they would because they could afford to keep on borrowing and they yeah. were in credit, so they could keep, you know, keep kind of workers on the payroll or put them on kind of reduced hours and keep them there. Um, but I think also, you know, I mean, there might be an overhang of that, but I mean, presumably that's drawing to an end now as interest mm-hmm. rates rise. But I think also the very richest can afford to do that. Um, Yeah, but and I think competitors to fall and not being able to keep up. I think also there's a there is a calculation of social peace, you know, and they are you know like there is a weird um, you know there is a weird kind of billionaire equivalent of all the kind of um, conspiracy theories and paranoid fantasies that dominate wider public consciousness, you know, and that's why they you know they buy up their their little um, concrete bunkers in New Zealand or whatever it is, you know. Like um, there is there is a constant fear, uh, a consciousness of how precariously perched they are on top of the pyramid, 
and um, a fear that it will all crumble beneath them. And so I think there are calculations of social peace involved as well. And they've been obsessively talking about inequality for years now, you know. And now that they finally see political repercussions, I think they do think about, um, you know, how can I maintain social order through my, um, you know, my largesse and my charity and my goodwill and what a good person I am, you know, by employing all these people. But here's the thing. People know that that's not that's not enough anymore. They, they're totally on to that. That's the thing where it's like, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, it's like, you know, you take this and you shut up and you submit to these terms and people are like, no, no, I'm not going to submit to those terms. Uh, I want more than that. Uh, and it's, and that's the sort of split between um, economic freedom and political freedom, where it's like, look, you can have this as long as you give up your political freedom. And people are like, no. I want that political freedom. And that's why I was saying it's it's going to take, I hope anyway, and or from what I've seen, I think future-oriented movements are probably going to take that form of political freedom. And the left won't recognize it because they're so used to sort of, the, well, they're like, well, why don't you ask for more money? Isn't That's all I understand. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, your freedom is a risk to other people because as I said, they've imbibed that neoliberal logic of, of risk and, and risk reduction is like the end goal of everything. Well, I, indeed. I mean, I think that it's something that we've been discussing on this podcast um, quite recently, with the episode also with Dylan Riley, uh, along these lines that political opposition, or rather, you know, kind of opposition and struggles increasingly are kind of state directed. And that can be both in terms of, you know, pleading the state for, for you know, rescuing or, or saving living standards, or uh, conversely, in a kind of more libertarian guise, as with the Canadian truckers, which uh, we discussed with you, Ashley, last time you were on, um, that uh, for a claim for autonomy. And I think a lot of politics seems to be torn between those two, between those two poles, and neither really puts into question um, property relations. So, the, mm-hmm. so I, I, I think there's, I think you're right in pointing out that the left w- is economistic, right? That it. Um, the, the good protests and the good um, forms of militancy that it wants to endorse are precisely ones which are demands for higher wages and conditions. And if the and if those only in that sense, it's important to emphasize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the, this is the thing that you you have a, you've made a really good point that um, that a lot of these kinds of protests are state directed because they're, they're there's a tendency to give far too much agency to the state. Um, and yeah. I, I remember a long time ago, I was asked to comment on this like news item, and it was that an enormous proportion of people saw the state as responsible for um, how much money they would get from their employers. Right. And obviously, that's something like um, minimum wage and that sort of thing. Is the, the, it's the legacy of that because the state obviously has a role in that. But they didn't really seem to understand that it had something to do with people kind of coming together to ensure that they don't get fleeced. Um and so there's this tendency, I think, across the political spectrum to see the state as having as being like the major player. And that, that is a massive sort of blind spot, because in a lot of these kinds of libertarian movements for political freedom, they have a tendency to downplay the role of their employer and even to see their employers as a benign influence. And I think yeah. that's obviously not progressive. No, and indeed, and, he, and also to ask the state to protect them. Um, you know, if if you have the right state managers or the right politicians in place to protect them from the whatever um, the the leftists who are coming to steal your children or whatever it might be. Yeah, so it's um, it's so just not- disempowering on on all levels to to view the state with that much agency. It's like, well, the state either protects me or fleeces me, but 
I don't have a role in this. I just I just will lobby the state. Yeah. So um, to, to round this out, I wanted to look forward to something in 2023 and actually um, take responses from everybody on what you might be looking forward to in 2023. Um, pretty radically different um, political terrain to what we were in pre-pandemic and indeed even during the pandemic. So the, the possibilities that there are um, stand out in contrast to this narrative, which I introduced at the beginning, that actually we've weathered the storm quite all right and um, the elites feeling that things can kind of carry on, that they've been able to um, get away with um, the the turbulence of, of the age and, and the kind of uh, lowering living standards and that everything is going to kind of be okay and that we've, we've uh, phew, we've, we've passed by populism. We've left that behind even, maybe. Um, I think we all agree that that's not so much the case. So um, some things to look forward to in 2023. I'll start with Ashley. So last year, somebody asked me this, and I found it to be just the most difficult question. And my answer at that time, if you recall, it seems a million years ago, but you know, still kind of pandemic season. Uh, I said that we would probably accept encroachments on our liberties that we never thought we would in the past. Uh, and I don't know whether or not that came true. Um, I'm, I'm not sure because you have like the online safety bill at the moment that was um, uh, stopped in, in parliament, but not for the right reasons, terrifyingly stopped because it didn't go far enough. That's the only thing that policymakers can say. So I don't know whether or not that happened. So I'm not, I'm not great with <laughs> predictions. Um, I feel like uh, you said to look forward to, I don't know, look forward to with trepidation, escalation of conflict, pushing around conflict, um, because obviously, as I said, and as we've been discussing, like you can't have wars on nations anymore. You, you know, you have to have a, a kind of long drawn out cold war or proxy wars. And I think there's something to calling that world war three, maybe just for effect, but it, there's something to that because we do need economically, I guess, um, these kinds of conflicts. There's like a, these sort of pushes people, you know, the old line is if you can't, make if you can't use steel to build things use steel for bullets i don't know if that's kind of a silly thing to say but you know i I do think that there's an underlying push to some of these things and yet the the consequences are so enormous nobody is willing to really start an enormous inter-country conflict so you fight these wars that are proxies and i think people will kind of keep pussyfooting around that push it around to you know china and taiwan um, and yet the, the desire for escalation is there. And that really, that really, really worries me. Yeah, rather likewise. George. Is it, um, is it too lame to say that I'm looking forward to the, to the podcast reading club in 2023? It is, it actually isn't, it is quite self-promoting, but it's actually almost true. Uh, oh, sorry, also true, not almost true. But no, actually engaging with, you know, the specific books and, and reading reading them. I think we've got some good stuff to dis- discuss there. There's a few kind of various collections of things to read. But in terms of, I think the sheer difficulty of the, the question in terms of identifying like potential developments or, or events or anything like that is, um, 
it's sort of revealing in itself to go back to what we were talking about with kind of dystopia and all that sort of thing. It's like, yeah, actually we should. Um, I remember, you know, in 20, start of 2020, it's like, what, what, what was I looking forward to? Oh yeah. Going, going to Brazil. That, that, that was quite cool. And then, you know, what an idiot, you know, shouldn't have, shouldn't have um, kind of tempted fate like that. Cause it didn't, you know, that year didn't really turn out or that kind of year and the next year was kind of all mold, mold into, meld into one 2020 2021 um you know didn't really turn out too great i mean also the june part two i'm looking forward to that i mean it's a bit of a small small fry compared to actually looking forward to um some like grander developments but yeah i think i'm i'm managing my own expectations to refer back to what i talked about earlier wait since um, you mentioned something frivolous can i say something frivolous frivolous (laughs) Um, yeah, Phil, yeah. Phil, in your uh, book, Lennon Lives, which we published when we scabs were at zero books, driving it into the ground, um, <laughs> uh, you had talked about the Kardashev scale, if I said that correctly, um, and a- about these uh, types of civilization uh, or typology of civilization, uh, depending upon how well they're capable of harnessing the uh, the energy in the universe. And I just saw yesterday in the newspaper, Saudi Arabia is in talks to harness a British plan for solar power in space, where they will throw up these big solar panels and um, transmit it down to the surface of earth and thereby solve all of our problems in terms of an endless supply of green energy. So there's something to look forward to in the next 50 years. become a type two civilization or or is it yeah type two civilization yeah funnily enough like um that was so you know um, i'm surprised george did mention the fifa champions league like isn't that something to look forward to no jesus christ i was gonna say the only thing i'm looking forward to i can't see anything there isn't anything politically um you know, that I think uh, one could look forward to with equanimity or confidence. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's apparently a satellite which is due to come, is due to kind of land on an asteroid and return a sample from the asteroid sometime later this year in October, I think. So if they manage to pull that off, that seems to me like, you know, that's something to look forward to, a technical, um, an impressive technical feat. Um, but beyond that, like, um, I'm not, I mean, I'm not pessimistic about the year, but there isn't any kind of specific, um uh, political, you know, event that I could s- say is uh, I could look forward to. Let's just hope that we don't blow up the Earth before we have the chance to blow it up with solar power. Yeah, <laughs> blow it up, but in a good way. Um, <laughs> for me, for me, the the thing is that I think there are at least some signs emerging that, amongst at least at, at a kind of intellectual level, that people are on, you know, who are. Uh, inclined towards the left are sick of uh, the contemporary left in terms of its, whether it's the limitations of its nostalgia for social democracy, uh, woke insanity or inanity um, and anti-imperialist cosplaying, whatever different kind of strands of left idiocy you have today, that people are getting sick of that and wanting to return to more fundamental questions about how to realize human freedom. And so I, I think that, I think there are some uh, green shoots there. Um, and I'm, I'm, I hope to have more discussions along that, those lines. One one other thing is that um, just because I like these kind of little historical parallels, um, if if our era maybe began not in 1989 but 19 
79, um, which was marked by um, not only kind of oil crises and, and the and the ascent of Thatcher and then Reagan the year after that, um, but also about the Iranian revolution. And um, maybe um, next year will be uh, the, or rather next year, we're already in 2023. I'm, I'm not used to it. I'm still writing 2022. Yeah, good point. But, um, but a revolution the in Iran. The end of the mullahs. The end of the mullahs revolution in Iran, which also might rekindle our uh, our desire for freedom. That would be something to look forward to. Yeah, I I would probably put money on the mullahs staying in place at least this year. But um, you're right; it is something which is kind of um, it's one of those uh, events that um, you could say is nonlinear. No, yeah. no, I I predict that um, family abolition is going to be a huge agenda item because everyone is absolutely determined that we never ever have a conversation that brings us any closer to discussing human freedom and alienates the working class as much as humanly possible. That's my prediction. No, okay. Well, you, you just took mine and, and went all <laughs> negative with it. Damn. Uh, <laughs> all right. That that is it for now. Thanks so much, Ashley, um, for coming on. Um, of course, always welcome on BungaCast. Um, and that's it uh, from us for now. We'll be back next week. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.